Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Pharmacist podcast series by ISMP Canada. This is a bi-monthly series looking into the topic of medication safety for community pharmacy practice and how to incorporate safe medication practices at your site. My name is Jim, and today I have our guest, Edmund Chu, joining us. Thanks, Jim. Glad to be here. Great to have you on, Edmund. Why don't you tell us about yourself and today's topic? I am a pharmacist and a medication safety analyst at ISMP Canada. So today, today's topic is going to be around compounding, and we're going to explore some of the work that's been done by SMP Canada uh, in terms of analysis and the errors that have been reported to us. And then we'll also kind of go over the NAPRA uh, guidelines that have been recently updated. So the process of compounding itself can be very simple or very complex. According to Health Canada, the literal definition of compounding is the combining or mixing together of two or more ingredients, of which at least one is a drug or pharmacologically active component, to create a final product in an appropriate form for dosing. It can involve raw materials or the alteration of the form and strength of commercially available products. This can be as simple as mixing hydrocortisone and clotramazole in an ointment base. So even if you don't consider yourself a specialized compounding pharmacy, most pharmacists perform compounding in some shape or form. So having said that, I'm going to describe an incident that was submitted to ISMP Canada. For about 18 months, a young child had been receiving a 3-gram dose of tryptophan suspension by mouth at bedtime to treat a complex sleep disorder. A refill of the tryptophan prescription was ordered and picked up from the compounding pharmacy that had prepared the suspension in the past. That night, the child was given the usual dose of medication. The next morning, the child was found deceased in bed. A post-mortem toxicology test identified lethal levels of the antispasticity agent baclofen, which had not been prescribed for the child. Testing of the suspension refill revealed that tryptophan, the intended active ingredient, was not present. This finding was consistent with a selection error having been made at the pharmacy where one ingredient was inadvertently substituted for another. It was determined that the child had received a dose of baclofen more than 20 times the maximum recommended pediatric dose. This was a very extensively covered incident in the media and many of our listeners may find it familiar. When we received this incident at ISMP, a root cause analysis was performed to find out how this error came about. Edmund, can you share the results with us? Absolutely. So what the analysts at ISMP Canada did was look at each step of the compounding process and then try to identify the gaps in safety, especially in this particular case. And so what they found was um, an important step was missing, and this was an independent verification step. So before mixing the ingredients, the names and the quantities were not verified. And what this does then is increase the likelihood that an incorrect ingredient would be selected and then incorporate it into the compounded uh, product. And because there wasn't an independent double check, uh, the error would not have been detected. So for a regular prescription, usually the pharmacist will check the original stock bottles against the hard copy and the prescription. And similarly for any compounds, wouldn't it have been checked before dispensing? Yeah, you've got a point. So we're not sure exactly what was missed. The final check may have been done and the ingredient may have been misidentified. Alternatively, there may have been a delay in conducting the final check of the completed product. So then the incorrect ingredient used to prepare the product may have been put away before being checked, and then the correct ingredient was then retrieved later uh, at the final check. So what would be some of the critical steps in the compounding workflow that can help to increase safety then? So there's five major ones. 
Um, so the first one being selecting the formula, then checking calculations, then identifying the ingredients, uh, measuring the ingredients, and checking the final product. So each of these steps should have an independent double check before they occur, and as well as um, appropriate documentation for each step. Is there a way to perhaps incorporate technology to make these verification steps easier on the workflow, especially, let's say, if you're working in a busier pharmacy? Yeah, there's uh, some options for pharmacies for sure. And so some in place right now are, for example, a video camera that would record the entire compounding process. So these videos can be then viewed to confirm compounding activities. And the intent really isn't to replace the pharmacist going in to sign off uh, on the ingredients and the measurements and whatnot, uh, but for also retrospective analysis and, and training. Another technology that uh, can be incorporated, incorporated is barcode scanning. And so with scanning, uh, this can be used to catch any in incorrect ingredients uh, before mixing occurs. I can see uh, barcoding scanning being a big help with product identification for both regular medications and compounding chemicals. Uh, especially since compounding jars always have labels that look very similar and many times the writing is really hard to read and distinguish. Yeah, exactly. So in this incident, both the chemicals came from the same manufacturer and then the font size of the drug was less than half the size of the company's name. So that makes it very difficult to read. And what also doesn't help is the drug names are also in all capital letters, which then makes it again hard to distinguish between the two and everything sort of looks the same. And then this also could have contributed to the, the selection error. So the analysis also mentioned that both tryptophan and baclofen are white powders, and there was no visual cue to really alert the pharmacy staff that they picked up the wrong product. So this is a scenario where confirmation bias makes you believe that what you intended to grab is what you actually have in your hands. So what can a pharmacy do in this case if the manufacturers don't change their labels? So the labels from the manufacturer, unfortunately, is nothing the pharmacy can do. But depending on the pharmacy, they may um, have auxiliary labels that you can um, stick on these error-prone chemicals. Um, that way, there's a visual cue that's added uh, to these ingredients. Or more generally, what pharmacies can do is have compounding chemicals stored um, in well-lit areas, organized storage spaces, um, and having the products at eye level. That, and all of these uh, contribute to making um, the labels easier to read. And also separating... Oral and topical ingredients may also be helpful. So the NAPRA standards also sort of reflect these sort of ideas. And actually, the updated NAPRA guidelines now do cite a safety bulletin um, that ISMP Canada wrote for non-sterile compounding. And so I want to highlight a couple of these uh, right now. So number section six, rather, um, product and preparation requirements. One of the points is verification where this must be done at each stage of the compounding process. And then point 11 is um, also saying that an event report must be completed by any incident or accident involving a compounded non-sterile product. There's also section seven, which is quality assurance, and one of them is documentation. And so this point outlines that uh, uh, it must be verified, signed, and retained as per requirements of the uh, applicable pharmacy regulatory authority. Having a standard-setting organization like NAPRA pushing for more regulated compounding processes will definitely help to serve the public much better in terms of safety. I think it will also help with any pharmacies that compound non-sterile products to develop a safer workflow 
with policies and procedures uh, that incorporate some of these standards. Yeah, exactly. So this also reflects how shared learning is incredibly important. Um, and that safety bulletin also demonstrated how engaging the family and the patient in incidents like these can also be very powerful for um, uh, changing the standards. Okay, so I want to talk about another compounding incident we received at ISMP Canada. Um, a patient was discharged from hospital after surgical excision of a cancerous tumor and was further treated in a collaborative arrangement by a conventional medical team and a naturopathic doctor at a complementary care center. The naturopathic doctor prescribed a complex tissue and wound healing formulation, which included selenium for twice-weekly IV administration. The selenium solution was prepared by a compounding pharmacy and was added to the formulation on site at the center. The patient had received this healing formula on 12 previous occasions with no reported reactions. However, shortly after initiation of the 13th dose infusion, she became nauseous and diaphoretic. The infusion was stopped and homeopathic remedies were administered with no clinical improvement. Over the next several hours, the patient's condition continued to deteriorate. When the patient began to experience hypotension, shortness of breath to the point of cyanosis and chest pain, she was transferred to the emergency department of a local hospital where she later died. Post-mortem investigations showed that the selenium concentration in the infusion was 1,000 times greater than intended, which likely contributed to the patient's death. So Edmund, can you give us a breakdown of the contributing factors that led to this particular incident? So some of the analysis that SMB Canada contribute um, in terms of contributing factors um, are the following. So the first one may have been confirmation bias of the amount of selenium weighed. And so the confirmation bias, which uh, we mentioned earlier in the tryptophan case, leads one to see information that confirms uh, their expectation, uh, regardless of the information that's actually in front of them. So in this case, the expected unit um, of weight was milligrams, even though the actual unit of measure displayed on the scale may have been grams. And so if one's looking at for the number and not paying attention to the units, then uh, there could be a mismatch here. And when the mismatch occurs, then there's a 1,000-fold overdose. Similarly, it can be hard to use a visual check to check between milligrams and grams weighed. To the naked eye, the amounts uh, in front of one may look very similar. And so if a visual check was used to double check the amount weighed, uh, this may have increased the likelihood that the incorrect amount was made into the final product. So it's safer to use a readout instead uh, to check the weight, and that way you can check the, the amount weighed and the units as well, uh, not only at the time of, time of measurement, but also at a later time. Another potential factor is the use of the abbreviation for microgram, which um, is mu g in the selenium solution formula. This abbreviation looks very similar to milligram or mg, and so if they're confused uh, between each other, so if one's mistaken for the other, uh, this could also lead to an overdose. So I find that these types of contributing factors like confirmation bias uh, and use of dangerous abbreviations are very common and have been consistently identified in the past. Unfortunately, it looks like they continue to contribute to errors. So what can pharmacies do or what can they implement today to help address some of these issues? I think it's gonna be highly site-specific in terms of what a pharmacy can implement today. Because every pharmacy's needs are gonna be different, um, their preferences are gonna be different, and also the equipment available and resources available. So I think the very first thing a pharmacy uh, could do is review existing procedures, just so they get an idea of where they're at. 
So this would mean uh, going step by step and writing down exactly what's done in the sterile compounding process. So for example, one of those steps could be the pharmacist or the technician would have to identify the correct ingredient by looking at the drug label. So that's a cognitive test and that's um, a step in the process. Also, another one of these steps could be that the formula selected uh, is double checked against the prescription. And so once all of this uh, process has been mapped out and the existing procedures are understood, then changes can be identified and implemented uh, for a safer process. So one workflow change a pharmacy could consider is adding a step of checking whether a product is commercially available. This would avoid unnecessary compounding preparation, which can minimize errors because uh, choosing something off the shelf is uh, much more much simpler than um, compounding something. And so um, there's less steps involved, and so then it becomes uh, safer to go ahead with something with less steps. It makes a lot of sense for a pharmacy to first do a review of its own workflow and then decide on what to change. That way, it helps pharmacies incorporate more appropriate recommendations, and they don't make changes blindly based on all the recommendations that might have been provided. Yeah, there's lots of good stuff out there. Uh, but again, it just comes down to what would be most effective for your pharmacy. And that, again, case-by-case case scenario is going to come down to you know, what's currently being done, what people would prefer, and what resources are available. Another workflow change the pharmacy could consider is using the same unit of measure throughout the workflow. So that means the balance, the calculations, and all the formulas all use one unit of measure. And this uh, prevents any conversion errors uh, happening along the way. You can also uh, include technology. So we've mentioned barcoding um, earlier, uh, but other technologies available are scales that print out um, uh, the weight uh, that was measured. And that way, that can then be double-checked at a later time rather than just at the time of uh, weighing the product. Are there any specific NAPRA standards regarding uh, the things that you mentioned? I think what's interesting is that the NAPRA standards are a fantastic resource for identifying gaps in a pharmacy's sterile compounding workflow. So sometimes it can be difficult to think of improvements, especially with the process being so complicated and uh, so many things going on at once. But looking at the NAPRA standards then sort of breaks it down for you with, uh, to, for things that you, you should consider. And, and so by, again, by looking at the NAPRA standards, it's an easy way to do a workflow review and then compare. So if NAPRA says this, you know, compare that to what I'm doing now, and then uh, lo and behold, there could be a gap that needs to be addressed. This kind of approach is very proactive as well, so errors can be prevented before they happen. For example, the standards uh, in NAPR describe how to keep a log for batch preparations, and if a pharmacy was relooking at their documentation, NAPR outlines very clearly what should be included. NAPR also makes an emphasis on verification during the sterile compounding process, and suggests doing it in one of three ways. Um, direct observation, utilizing a digital camera to observe, or reviewing the ingredients through a window. Okay, so it looks like NAPRA standards can play a large role in ensuring the sterile compounding process is safe for patients. Anything else you would like to add, Edmund? I think compounding is a very complex activity and therefore makes it very error-prone. And the main message today is to be cognizant of the contributing factors that can lead to errors, and then to take steps to mitigate the likelihood that they lead to um, harm and errors. So with that in mind, it is critical to minimize the potentially fatal impact of these uh, factors. 
And so once again, the NAFRA guidelines serve as a, a great starting guide to not only meet best practice standards, but to also minimize patient harm. Okay, great. Well, that about wraps up this episode. So thank you, Edmund, for coming on today and talking about compounding errors. Thanks for having me, Jim. So that brings us to the end of another episode of the Smart Pharmacist podcast series. Thanks for tuning in. For our next episode, we'll be discussing drug-drug interactions in the elderly population. Thank you.